May it please the court, counsel, I'm Catherine Middlebrook, Chief Appellate Public Defender, representing the appellant, Luis Cruz Montanez. It's a fundamental principle that when the state brings its judicial power to bear on an indigent defendant in a criminal proceeding, that it must ensure that that defendant has a fair opportunity to present his defense. This principle cannot be compromised or disregarded if the indigent defendant is disabled in communication, either non-English speaking or hard of hearing. The lower court's decision does exactly that, and this court must reverse. This case is before this court on appeal from the denial of a 611-21 request for interpreter services that were needed for appellant to be able to communicate with his defense attorney. The district court Ms. denied- Ms. Middlebrook, can I stop you and just ask you, you know, on that point, it, it does strike me as odd in terms of just the procedural posture that we have here, that it is an appeal from the denial of uh, the request for interpreter services. It's not an appeal that we typically would see, which is an appeal of the, the underlying conviction. And so I'm wondering, and this gets into the mootness issue, but if we agree with you and say it's, it falls under, it's not moot or it's moot, but it falls under one of the exceptions to mootness, what, does, what do we do? What is the end result of that? What, what does our opinion say vis-a-vis -vis his conviction? Because we're not dealing with his conviction. This is, this is more akin to a pre-trial appeal. So I, help me kind of figure out the logistics of that. I mean, what is this animal and what does an opinion say in that regard? Absolutely, Your Honor. Um, and, and your question does go in large part to the mootness. Um, because obviously, um, uh, appellant's criminal case has been resolved. You know, he, he ended up with um, pleading guilty to a second-degree assault uh, for a year and a day. He had enough credit of jail credit that it was time served, and he was immediately released from custody. And that all happened before this court got the case. Um, on the facts, it seems that it would be moot, but what we're asking the court to do is to address the issue because the, the denial of the 611-21 funds did cause the public defender budget to be tapped into for the new fiscal year. That's how the interpreter fees were paid. And we're asking that this court reverse the order and order that they, that amount be reimbursed to the public defender system so that it goes into their new uh, fiscal year 2020 budget. Um, if, on the other hand, the 61121A does have a provision in there that the court can um, can authorize these funds to be paid after the fact in unusual situations, and that would Count, I'd say Counsel, that let, would, me, let me stop you there. So we don't need to. This isn't about his conviction. We don't say anything about his conviction. This is just purely about. Uh, an order vis-a-vis -vis, um, if we agree that it's not moot or that one of the exceptions apply about uh, whether we reverse or affirm that particular order. That's correct. That's correct. And as far as um, with the, 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 on the mootness part of it, if the court feels that the facts in this case, because the criminal case is resolved, there is another case that's right now stayed at the Court of Appeals. It's State versus Martin Morales um, that is 
actually on hold basically because the, the 611 funds were denied for interpreter services. That defendant was luckily out of custody, so they've just left that on hold um, because it was denied based on this decision that's, in Cruz, That's Montana's. helpful, because one of the other factors, at least for myself, that I've thought about is if we say this is moot, then um, one option, it seems to me, would be to say that and then vacate the Court of Appeals opinion, potentially, and wait for a, a more proper case. And what, what I'm hearing you say is that there is, there is this more proper case. There is. That could be accelerated for this court to decide that if you feel the facts here are. But on the mootness, if you feel the facts, find, you know, render this case moot based just on that, there, all of the exceptions really apply here on the mootness because it is a case that is functionally judiciable. We have briefed it. The attorney general has come in as respondent. Um, so it's all fully briefed. And Council, Council, should we, oh, sorry. Should we uh, worry that um, there's no county representation here, though? And the county, of course, would be the one to, to foot the bill the, if, if your argument is well, successful. In, so first of all, this, this, the 61121 requests are ex parte. So the county is not involved with those um, from the, when they first filed, and it's questionable whether they should be at any point. But I do know that the, the order granting the petition for review here did invite the Minnesota Association of Counties to come in and participate, and they have declined to do that. So they were invited in this case to come in, didn't do so. So I think that the court can take that into account as well. And Council, would you agree with me that this issue is not going to go away? I mean, this is a very pressing issue across the state of Minnesota. Absolutely right. This, this issue is not going to go away because it has to do with uh, paying for interpreter services where the public defender budget has been depleted. And it's continuing even now. There's cases that are on hold in the district court. Um, we're into a new fiscal year, so many of those services have been paid, but now at least two-thirds of the di district public defender's office are now out of their expert funds again, so in part because the funds were tapped into to pay last year's bill. So it's going to continue. The Court of Appeals decision has to be reversed because there's so many problems with it, and it, that makes turns it into a really significant statewide issue that but Council, really what needs. do we do though with the pretty express language in 611.33 dealing with qualified interpreters that say when you're talking about interpreter services other than in court services, um, it's the responsibility of the agency that's requesting the services, which is the public defenders. Um, I mean, that's kind of where the district court and the Court of Appeals came down, which is I, I don't think they were unsympathetic, obviously, to, to the plight, if you will. Um, but the language of, of 611.33 seems to say that that's still the responsibility of the public defenders and that you can't go, you can't use 611.21 as sort of that, that safe harbor. It, to that, to the last comment, um, Your Honor, I would dis, uh, respectfully disagree. That provision in 611.33 subdivision 3 does not say that 611.21 is not the safety valve for that. 
And obviously when you're looking at the language of the statute, um, what the court has to do and in looking at that, that you have to strive to look at the legislator's intent. The legislature, um, if you look at that statute, they use different language for... I'm going to say, so are you saying the statutes are ambiguous, or uh, how do we get to the legislative intent? Well, first of all, first of all, just looking at the plain language, um, the court does look at the, uh, look at, you know, to effectuate the legislator's intent, even looking at the plain language and how it's set out in a statute. And in this statute, there's two different, um, there's two different requirements. On the first part, for in-court interpreters' services, it says that that must be paid by the state courts. That's a mandate. It must be paid. The other uh, second part of that for with regard to the other um, agencies, such as law enforcement, prosecutors, the Board of Public Defense, and the um, corrections agents, it says it's their responsibility for the out-of-court um, need for an interpreter. So it's, it says they're responsible. The board has met its responsibility by, by getting funds from the legislature, but again, they are tied to what's appropriated to the, the so Board of not, Public Defense. it's not defense. a matter of the Board of Public Defense not being willing to, to expend those monies, it's that those monies run out. They do. And it shouldn't be reliant on, so if you have an individual who gets charged later in the year, it would be less likely that there would be interpreter services available to them versus somebody who gets charged early in the year. It's exactly right. And the, the, the plain, so the plain language uses two different, um, you know, the responsibility, the board takes on that responsibility. The board does that by, you know, getting the money from the legislature for all the public defender costs and, and services. And, and then the board allocates it to each of the judicial districts who then in turn manage their own budgets. And part of that appropriation and part of the allocation goes to these expert services. The interpreter services are included in with the other expert services that include experts, investigators, um, conflict attorneys, um, and, and any other services needed for an adequate defense, which includes interpreter services. And so by the board allocating the funds the way it, and, and providing for that, they are taking responsibility for paying for interpreter services until the money runs out. And what, with the district court's order here and the Court of Appeals decision, they don't provide any safety valve. They say 611.21 is not available, and that's just wrong. It has to be available, or there's a real problem with the statute. And as the court's well aware, we try to avoid a constitutional violation by how a statute is read. Counsel, you've provided a chronology as part of your brief, but there are a couple of items that I didn't see in the chronology that I wanted to ask you about. We've got the order um, from the district court denying the ex parte application for services on January 22nd. Then you take that order to the Court of Appeals. But in the meantime, a couple of things, I think in the meantime, a couple of things happen. First of all, the chief public defender makes an arrangement for interpretive, ser interpretive services for your client. What was the date of that arrangement? That would, let's see, I think it was in, would have been in, um, at some point in April because uh, appellant ended up, um, I think his plea was in April 
And so the... That was my second question. When was his plea? Yeah, and that, that's actually in the brief um, that when he, he pled guilty in April and because of time served, um, he was immediately released. So yeah, but at that point... the specific date is kind of important because the Court of Appeals published decision affirming the district court's order was April 8th. So did he plead guilty before the Court of Appeals ruled or after? It was right after. Okay. And, but he got the interpreter services before the Court of Appeals ruled? He, so he must have had the interpretive services earlier than the Court of Appeals at the point where At the point where the uh, offer came from the state for the plea, that was when the chief public defender was able to make arrangements with the interpreter because they needed to discuss the plea, obviously, and um, agreed for the delayed payment. So that would have been right at around the time of the plea. So, so the interpretive services were provided to make sure that he could make an accurate and voluntary and knowing plea? To be, no, I think that there's a, but there, I think there's a difference that's important clarification, if I understand, counsel, is that the court pays for interpreter fees that are happening in court. So if he comes right. in for a plea and is going to plead before the court, the court provides those services. But for in order for you to have discussions with your client outside of court, that falls upon the responsibility of your office. Absolutely. Right. So, and, he, and he got those services before he entered the plea. Absolutely. And I mean, he, he would have had to because they would need to discuss, you know, whether to go to trial or whether to plead, you know, the, the different consequences of the plea. That would have happened before the plea. Where, where in the record could I look to find out if he got those services before the Court of Appeals decision? How could we figure that out? Uh, well, the, the register of actions would show when, when the plea hearing took place. There is nothing in, I mean, the, there's nothing in the record that, set, that gives the date of the, the discussion with, between the defense attorney and appellant, um, and I don't, I don't have the, you know, the interpreter I'm, I'm bills trying, are not in the record. I'm trying to when the case that is between the state and your client went moot, because I think it did go moot, and because he got the services that were the subject of his, of his appeal. And if he got the services before the Court of Appeals decision, then the Court of Appeals was essentially deciding a moot case. So on the, the factu factually, you are correct. The case has resolved. But the, again, the, I set out the exceptions to the mootness doctrine. And, and I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I was just focusing on the issue of mootness itself, not, notwithstanding whether there's an exception available. And so my question is, how can we figure out if the Court of Appeals essentially decided a moot case, whether or not exceptions apply. But the issue is not whether he got the service. The issue is who's going to pay for it. So the issue is still live in that the money came out of next year's budget, and you're asking for a reimbursement of, that, of those monies. That's, that's correct. That's what we are asking for. Um, and I, also, I, you know, as far as the, the mootness on the facts of the case, that it is, it is irrelevant in the sense of what this issue is presented to the court yeah, as. But you're, you've got a real live client. His name is Montanez. And he's received the services that he thought he should get. The only and he's not on the hook for paying for them, is he? No, he's, he's not. He's so indigent. he hasn't sustained, at this point, he has no injury. 
it, it, you're, you're correct on that. He's, his case is resolved, and that's why if, if the court feels that this case factually is not the right one for this court, then I would request that you accelerate the one at the Court of Appeals because that one is in, it, it isn't moot because it's still on hold. They're still waiting for, to get interpreter fees for that case to proceed. But, counsel, that doesn't really answer the question of, I mean, there's a, because it's not in the record how much of the conversation was able to be held or how long they were able to have time to discuss with the client about what the potential outcomes are because all of that is driven by cost, unfortunately. And so the issue, while, while he may have, may have pled guilty, there might have been potential different outcomes if there had been this issue of who was going to pay for it and how long the interpreter was going to be able to be available, et cetera, et cetera, was not present. Maybe that doesn't matter. But my, other, my question is, is that is it fair to say that oftentimes when interpreters are unavailable because of financial reasons, which this has been an ongoing issue, is that sometimes family members are asked to provide the interpretation, and that's even less um, reliable because it's not somebody who has been gone through the programming and the language is, can be so different in the dialect and the education level. Is that a fair statement? Um, that, that is a fair statement. And, and it isn't that, you know, when you're talking about the, the, what the uh, public defender offices do, I mean, they do try to um, use what, other, you know, what resources they have if they, you know, if they have to pay for an interpreter and they have the funds, they do that. If they can use a family member or another person that the defendant trusts, they'll use that, but you're absolutely right. It, it's probably not the ideal situation, um, but, but sometimes that happens. A lot of offices have bilingual attorneys, but, you know, as you get out into greater Minnesota, that's less and less um, available, especially when they can't even hire attorneys. And especially when it comes to the legalese that is used in discussions of taking a plea or entering the plea and what the, what the disposition might be versus... Absolutely. So it's best if they have a qualified interpreter. There's no doubt about it. And so then the, the question does come to, um, you know, where, who's going to pay for this when the public defender system ha no longer has the money for these uh, interpreter services? And the, the, what's, for the last two decades, what has happened is it, the fallback is the 611-21 funds when the, public, the district public defender no longer has funds to pay for these services. They go to the, dis the, the court and ask for funds under 611-21 for interpreter fees, just like any other expert fees. Counsel, I just, um, on that point, um, you know, you're making a representation to us as the chief public, appellate public defender and an officer of the court, and, and I believe you. I think that, that when you say that that's been the historical practice. Um, but is there anything that you can point us to to support that, I mean, it, it's. I know it's one of those things that's kind of hard to to, to demonstrate because you're saying because we wouldn't see it because it happened. Uh, we wouldn't see the cases because the the funds were paid. But how do we know? Is there anything that we can look to to say to to support your assertion that that has been the historical practice? Well, for um, I think the probably the most telling 
um, support of that is that there's never been an appeal before this case regarding this issue and because they, these interpreter fees have either been paid by the public defender when they have the money to do so, and when they run out, they go to 61121 to get the funds. So I think that's probably the most telling evidence that this is how it, the practice has been and how, um, where there's, because there's never been any case before where it was denied and been on appeal. So this is the first time that this case has come, this issue has come up. That, that said, you know, it does strike me though that the Court of Appeals interpretation of the language, um, uh, you can request uh, money for investigative, expert, or other services necessary to an adequate defense. And the Court of Appeals said, well, you gotta look, the other services has to be kind of like the first two. It has to either be investigative or expert services. And I think there's, that's a ra certainly a rational interpretation of that, and I would, would believe, I do believe, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that typically, you know, for instance, when the PDs are dealing with a homicide case, you're going to need a forensic expert in many cases. And that's what that's designed to get at. That's the expert testimony that, that a public defender would, would typically go out and find, or because you need that. Right. And so I think there's some reason, some rationale to how the, the Court of Appeals interpreted saying, well, the other services necessary has to be in like, you know, like that. What's your response to that? I mean, it sounds like in your brief you say, well, it can also be interpretive services, yeah. but, but their position is not unreasonable. If, well, first of all, I do disagree with the Court of Appeals. Um, they're categorizing interpreter services outside of other services needed for an adequate defense. I think the interpreter services are probably one of the most critical pieces of the services needed for an adequate defense because without those, the defendant is denied um, due process as well as in effect, uh, a Sixth Amendment right to counsel because not being able to communicate with counsel is would render an ineffective assistance of counsel for preparing for a defense. And so I think that the interpreter services are probably the most critical other services necessary for an adequate defense. And the, you know, the attorney general has agreed that they are services that are necessary for an adequate defense. So the, the Court of Appeals, by how they're characterizing them, I'm not really sure um, their, their idea that somehow it's part of the attorney-client privilege, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because the attorneys can't provide, you know, the expert services or even the investigative services, and they can't provide the interpreter services. So they are definitely in that services category that are necessary to make sure that a defendant is given the, a fair opportunity and a chance for a fair trial. Counsel, for a case to be functionally justiciable, you typically need somebody defending the opinion below. You're not defending the opinion in the Court of Appeals. I don't really see the Attorney General's office as defending the opinion. If we don't have somebody defending the result below, why, why is this case functionally justiciable? Well, first, you do have the Attorney General filing a responsive brief. And so I guess I would characterize that as 
you know, defending the Court of Appeals decision to the best that they can. I don't think it's defensible. And this is also an ex parte proceeding from the beginning. So it seems that this court ultimately has to decide the issue whether there's someone opposing our position or not. And, the well, and part of your position essentially is that um, the, the way in which this, these cases arise, you're, you're very unlikely to have the sort of traditional A versus B, um, you know, with the issue sharply debated between the parties. That's absolutely right. And often it, at the Court of Appeals, um, when one of these orders is appealed, they will request the uh, Attorney General to come in um, and they, they, they do, or they, they file, you know, a, like an amicus brief, because that's probably a better characterization of their position, because these cases are ex parte, and they're not, um, you know, they aren't a, appellant versus, or, you know, appellant versus respondent in that sense. And also, also, would it also be possible for there to be a situation or a scenario where a defendant is um, incarcerated and and would have to sit and wait for this, the court to actually work through its process, which could be much longer than the time that the defendant would actually have to serve if they had pled a straight-up guilty plea? Well, this is, this is probably a, a, a perfect example of that, because um, even though the, uh, the appeal from the 611-21 order was expedited, the, that whole time, uh, appellant was sitting in jail, and at the point where, you know, and they have speedy trial rights, too. So you're, you know, if there's the delay on the appeal, even when it's expedited, it's still not that fast. And so here's a case, you know, exactly where the, the speedy trial rights are in play. There's an offer by the state. You know, he, appellant had to take that and it, get, out of, get out of jail. The other case that's at the Court of Appeals, that person is out of custody. So there's, you know, there's still the delays and the continuances going on, and it's basically on hold, but you don't have the same problem with the defendant being in custody and sitting in jail the whole time. So. Counsel, um, it just occurred to me, did, do you think, or what are your thoughts about whether or not a public defender would have any other avenues to secure these funds? Apart from, I mean, you know, the PD runs out of money. Let's say 611.21 is not available. The district court denies it. And I guess what I have in the back of my mind, and it's just coming to me right now, is could you have, for instance, um, sought funds from the state court administration? Content, you know, said, you know, this is the state responsibility to make sure that defendants' constitutional rights are protected we're going to come to the state? Um, That's an interesting question. I think that if the legislature was in session, we probably could go to the legislature and ask for an emergency um, funding. Um, that's what happened with the transcripts and the transcript issues. But, but the legislature, you know, everything had already been done by the time this decision came down. The budgets had already been put in and, and um, everything had been done there, and now the legislature is not in session again until February, so nothing can be taken care of with going to the legislature to either get more money or to try to get some sort of an amendment to the statute if the court um, decides that that's 
the, the correct reading of it. Um, but certainly the legislature in enacting 611.33 subdivision 3 did not intend to violate a defendant, a, a defendant that's disabled in communication, did not intend to deny them that service, how they uh, wrote that statute, because, and they didn't need to because they had 611.21 was already in place and was there for the safety valve. Can if, you just remind, who makes the budgeting decisions about how much goes into interpreter services versus other, like paying lawyers, that kind of thing? So under, under the statute, um, the, the Board, of, Board of Public Defense has a chief administrator, which is Kevin Kyer, who submitted an affidavit in this case. And the, the dis, each district public defender office, the appellate office, and then the public defense corporations, they each submit a budget their own budget to the, to the administrator, who then puts it together and then um, asks for the uh, funding from the legislature. When that funding comes back, it's a total sum. It's not each individual. And then the, the administrator, along with consulting and getting affirmance by the board, allocates that money to each of those 10 judicial district public defender office, the appellate office, and then the public defense corporations. So. Yeah, obviously, much of that budget is fixed costs that goes to personnel um, and other fixed costs that are in that have to be paid, and then the remaining is allocated amongst those offices or those the districts and the other offices by um, their their budget request. But also, they look at caseloads and their operating costs for each of those different districts, and then allocates what's left from the appropriation from the legislature out based on those um, different factors. So they do the best they can, obviously, but you know the legislature doesn't always give all the money that's requested. So they do the best they can and make as best estimate, but we still always run out. So the, the decision on which goes into the expert funds, um, they again, do the best they can, but the interpreter funds services are always included in that, in that line. So I see my time is out, uh, is up. We just ask again that this court reverse the Court of Appeals and the District Court's order. We have five minutes for rebuttal. Council? May it please the court, counsel. My name is Michael Lieberson. I am an assistant attorney general, and I'm appearing today by order of this court on behalf of respondent. There is no dispute in this case that appellant was entitled to the services of a qualified interpreter to facilitate out-of-court communication with his attorney. Likewise, there is no dispute that appellant received the services of a qualified interpreter. Instead, what is disputed here is which public funds should be used to pay for the cost of that interpreter. And for the reasons I will outline in my argument today, it is our position that the opinion of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed because the State Board of Public Defense, or I should say appellant, has not met his burden showing that there are no funds 
remaining in the State Board of Public Defense's budget to pay for these services. So you're, you're saying the Court of Appeals should be affirmed, but essentially on a different ground? Correct. So you're not defending the Court of Appeals statutory interpretation? Not 100%. We What percentage? I, I, I can't give a precise percentage there. We do believe the Court of Appeals was correct when they recognized that 611.33 uh, controls in this case. It places financial responsibility on the State Board of Public Defense. But we disagree with the Court of Appeals that 611.21a cannot be implicated if and only if the entire budget of the State Board of Public Defense is exhausted or otherwise encumbered. Council, what about the statement um, from the appellant that they had to dip into the next year's uh, fiscal year's funds? So that there wasn't money left in that annual so, so, budget. So what appellant has shown, and when you read the affidavits that were submitted as part of the motion in this case, all that appellant has shown is that that slice of the State Board of Public Defense's budget that was allocated to the 9th Judicial District and that was then further allocated to expert investigative or other expenses, including interpreters, is exhausted. We have nothing in our record right now about any other money in the State Board of Public Defense's budget. And Section 611.33 is very specific in saying that it's the Board of Public Defense's responsibility to pay for the costs of interpreters. So if we are going to... If you follow that argument, that seems to cut against your concession that I heard you say that um, it could still fall under 611.21. I assume because we already have a statute that talks about interpreters and imposing those, those costs on the board. I just want to make sure I understand. Um, we don't see anything in 611.21a that would necessarily remove interpreter services from that language, other services necessary for inadequate defense. That can include interpreter services. And I would note that the comparable federal statute that our state statute is based upon, this is the, the Criminal Justice Act, 18 U.S.C. Section 3006AE, has language that is almost identical to our state statute language. And the federal courts have interpreted that language as covering interpreter so, services. So, Counselor, are you relying on um, more of the statewide budget then rather than what is allocated to the judicial districts? Correct. For, so, for purposes of interpreter funding, correct. So if there were, you, you would want them to have shown that there was no monies left in any of the remaining nine districts, judicial districts? That is what we believe the statute requires, yes. For interpreter funding? For any funding, Anybody. because again, the statute specifically says the State Board of Public Defense is responsible. So the State Board of Public Defense needs to come forth and show that they have no money left in their budget before they are able to request interpreter fees 
through 611.21a. Is that going to be doable or practical when you have a criminal defendant awaiting trial? I, you know, I, I can't say for sure how this would be done, but I, I, I do know based on the affidavits. I mean, essentially, counsel, you would have, you could have districts arguing with each other. For example, the ninth district says, "Hey, we've got uh, this client who's." got a murder trial scheduled for January 21st and then we're going to we're going to take it from the second judicial district who's like oh no no we've got three clients that are scheduled for trial I mean that just isn't I mean along with what Justice Tudor said that doesn't make any sense to me well again it's what the statute requires and if, if this is going to place an impractical burden on the state board of public defense then they should ask the legislature to change the statutory language to put in a different standard. Does exhaustion of funds include encumbered funds? So say this happens in May 15th. We know we have a certain number of lawyers. We know we have rent that's due. We, the state to public defender knows that. So will you count that month and a half of salaries and healthcare benefits and rent as exhausting those funds? Correct. So our, our brief talks about funds can be otherwise encumbered. So, so certainly funds that we already know we're going to need to use to pay salaries, to pay rent, to pay those type of expenses, those would be otherwise encumbered. Those would not be available in the State Board of Public Defense's budget. What our point is, is the legislature and, and, has... And just to clarify, the, the problem with the case is that we just don't know one way or the other. It's not in the record. Correct, which, which is why we believe the Court of Appeals outcome should be affirmed here because appellant has not met his burden to show that there are no funds available in the State Board of Public Defense's budget. And I, you know, I, there, there is a chief administrator for the Board of Public Defense and it, at least based on what I've read in the, these affidavits, it looks to me like they very closely track where money is going, what money is available. And the only thing that they have said here is that there are no funds available in this small slice of the State Board of Public Defense's budget. So it's basically a fight over who should pick up the tab. Correct. That and is Norm, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing you typically find in a civil case, isn't it? Correct, yes. Where you have discovery, you can, you can develop the record, find out who's got what money for what, uh, who's got what money in its budget when. Why shouldn't this just be handled in a civil case? The, the, the dispute. Particular dispute here? I mean, that is certainly one, one option that this court has if it's uncomfortable with the record as it stands. Uh, what, what we would submit is that this court should decide the particular statutory issue. Who would have standing in a civil case? You know, the, the State Board of Public Defense may have standing. I, I, I just don't know. Um, you know, I do I mean, think... It would just be odd for a, a government agency to come forward and sue because the legislature hasn't given them enough money. It seems like it has to implicate some individual's rights somehow. Correct. You would need a live, ripe dispute. And the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office has brought a lawsuit against the state. Uh, I believe it's cited in my brief, uh, Kennedy versus, and I'm blanking on, on the last name. So that certainly 
is a possibility. But what we have here is we have this issue teed up for this court. We believe it is functionally counsel, judiciable. Counsel, before you go further, back up again. Hennepin County, I, I don't remember that reference in your brief. Tell me a little bit more. What's the suit about? Is it on this issue? No, it was not on this oh, okay. particular so. issue, but it had to do with the level of state funding that was given so it was to a public funding, defenders. So related funding yes. type of issue. And I guess for full disclosure, this court dismissed it um, for lack of standing in that case because they were not able to show that any particular client had been harmed. So it really goes yeah. to Justice Teeson's point. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was Kennedy versus yeah. Carlson, wasn't it? Correct, yeah. correct. Thank you very much. Um, I, I did want to respond to Justice Lillyhog's question before about the specific timing of what happened when. Um, the Court of Appeals opinion was issued on April 8th, 2019. Uh, petitioner pled guilty on April 14th, 2019, and he was sentenced and, in fact, released from custody on that very same day. So the Court of Appeals opinion came out roughly a week before the guilty plea was entered. But the other date I was searching for was when the um, chief public defender cut the deal to get him interpreter services anyway, irrespective of who was going to pay. And Correct. Do you have any, is there anything in the record on that? There, there's not anything specific. What I can say, because I did, I did kind of make a chart here, and what, what I have for my chart is sometime between January 22nd and April 8th, or I'm sorry, April 14th, is when that deal would have been cut because we know there was no deal when the second motion was brought, and you know we, we know by the time of the, the guilty plea, certainly arrangements had, had been made. Um, but I would like to get back to the the underlying merits of, of, of this case. It is our position that the statutory language of Section 611.33, Subdivision 3, is clear. Payment for activities requiring interpreter services on behalf of the Board of Public Defense is the responsibility of the agency that requested that service. So we know that the primary agency that is responsible, or the agency that is responsible for providing these services is the Board of Public Defense. So at the very least, until all of the board's funds have been exhausted or otherwise encumbered, there is simply no statutory language that would support the granting of a 611-21A motion. And Again, as I mentioned before, if there are concerns that this may be difficult to prove or this may place undue burden on the Board of Public Defense, that's an issue that needs to be taken up with the legislature. Now, with respect can, to can the... I just, can I just come back to the timing question? So when absolutely. the Court of Appeals decided this case, it was not moot? Correct. It was not moot. Okay. And, uh, but we don't know when the deal was cut, whether that was before the Court of Appeals or not, so a question of whether the state can act to make something moot to avoid appeal to our court. That's not a clear, there's no clear answer on that. Um, I, I'm just I, thinking of the Ford case that we recently decided. Yeah, I guess there's no clear answer in the record as we have it. Um, you know, again, I, I, got, I got some of these dates based on the petition for review. And which counsel, I think okay. it's a fair statement to say that that would never be in the record because 
it can it, it just isn't a part of a, a recorded discussion as to when those conversations are, are held it could have been the morning of the plea it could have been the day before there's just nothing in the record that's going to tell us that other than what you have done which is between January and April correct we simply don't have the I'm, record here. I'm sorry council then how if you don't know how can you say that the case wasn't moot as of the time of the Court of Appeals opinion if the deal for interpreter services was cut before the opinion came down and the services were provided then the case would be moot wouldn't it I mean you say in your brief it's technically moot because they got the services correct we believe it's moot I mean we, we believe it's moot as we stand here right now and you know I guess there would be a question as to whether it was moot at the time of the Court of Appeals opinion or not I think it's likely it was not moot but we cannot say for certain I would agree with that said we believe but you can't say for certain either way whether it was no. moot or on correct um, what we can say is even if it is moot we believe the exception for functionally judiciable issues of statewide importance are implicated in in this case this this is an incredibly important issue the the rights of defendants to have interpreters the functioning of the court itself depends upon ensuring that there is a clear structure in place for how these funds should be paid um, we, we have also done our best to provide adversarial briefing you know we oftentimes even when we are representing the state or representing a party we oftentimes take a different position than the Court of Appeals did that comes to the same result and that's what we are doing here so we would ask this court to issue a decision on this very important matter with respect to the argument about this has been the standard practice that courts decide 611.21 a motions and grant them for interpreters all the time I remind you that these are ex parte proceedings so every time the district court grants a motion for interpreter fees there is nobody to appeal and the only reason this issue is getting to us now is because for the first time one of these motions has been denied so I don't think we can read too much into the fact that this has been an ongoing practice with respect to the public defenders policy arguments that that are made that it's you know unreasonable to require this showing from the board that it places you know great restraints on the board's finances the fact of the matter is somebody has to bear the burden of these costs and each time a 611a motion is granted a county must find funds somewhere in its budget to pay for this in many counties have budgets far far smaller and I'm not saying that the public defender has you know sufficient funds to do everything that they need to do but I think we also have to recognize that many counties operate under very small budgets the county involved in this case Pennington County their entire county budget is 20.1 million dollars and that's to provide all the health and human services correctional um, welfare sir I mean that's a lot of burden to place on counties Red Lake County in northern Minnesota their entire county budget 8.9 million so this is just it's important to recognize that counties will bear the burden if this court allows 
a motion. Council, I, I certainly hear what you're saying, but you know, the I think what also has to come into the balance is the fact that it is the county um, pursuing a you know, in this case, a felony charge. Correct. You're about to deprive someone of their liberty. And if the state is going to do that and make that decision, uh, you know, our whole system of, juris of jurisprudence is, it's kind of what you alluded to at the beginning, is founded on the idea that if the state is going to do that, the state then has an obligation to, to ensure that a, that a defendant has effective assistance of counsel, and you cannot have effective assistance of counsel if the attorney can't communicate with their client. I absolutely inside agree. or outside of court. Correct, and the legislature has answered how it sees or how it wishes to fulfill its responsibility to provide interpreter services, and that is through appropriations to the state board of public defense. And once all of those funds are exhausted, at that point, there is this backup mechanism in place, the 611.21A, that can okay. allow a public defender to request funds when the, the whole state PD budget is exhausted. Council, um, can I have you back up just one moment? Um, you had indicated that you wanted this court to, to decide this issue. I'm curious what your thoughts are about um, the case that uh, Ms. Middlebrook mentioned to us at the Court of Appeals that is now stayed. Might that be a better vehicle to, to answer these very critical questions? Because you think we don't, we wouldn't, it sounds like we would not be dealing with the same mootness issues. What are your thoughts on that? Correct. You know, it's, it, it's hard for me to speak on the factual specifics of this case. I can tell you I am aware of the case. I am counsel of record on that case. Um, however, we not being a party to, to the action, we typically do not look at the, the underlying documentation related to the case. We take our responsibility just to focus on this interpreter issue. So I don't know what the procedural posture of that, that case is. Um, what I can say is we have a functionally judiciable record here. We think it's important that this question get answered as quickly as possible. So although the legislative session is not until next year, that's quickly coming up. And it is important that, that, that everybody know wh who is responsible for, for these funds. And if in fact, um, as the Court of Appeals held, the State Board of Public Defense is going to be responsible for this, that's something that the legislature should, should know. So we would ask this court to decide this important issue. And I just don't see any advantage from a, a record standpoint or a functional judiciability standpoint in waiting. Even though you're really not adverse. I mean, other than this, uh, you know, other than the issue of whether or not the, the public defense board has to spend their entire budget, you're really not, the adversity seems to be lacking. And I, I disagree. This is our office's position as to how these statutes work. We are defending the judgment below. We are defending the outcome below concerning whether this appellant is entitled to these funds or not. And if the other case comes up here to the Supreme Court, um, you know, if you're not going to have a county attorney participating, 
because this is an ex parte matter. Statute says so. And so I'm, I, I'm not aware of any instance where you're going to get somebody who's more adversarial than we are. I would also note that this court, and I apologize, I'm going to butcher the name of the case, but it is one of the mootness cases that we cite in our brief. It's the- Chumi. <laughs> Tuskumi? Chumi. Tuskumi, thank you. Um, that case, that also talks about when you have an issue like this in the context of an ex parte proceeding where it's not traditionally adversarial, that is a case where the court is less stringent on looking at whether we have, you know, a true adversarial relationship among the parties. With that said, we believe we do have an adversarial relationship as to appellant because we are urging that this court affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Um, unless there are any other questions from the panel, I, I have said that all that I intend to say. Uh, so with that, we would respectfully ask this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Counsel. Five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, just, just to clarify, I pulled the register of actions on this case um, just so the court has the exact dates that um, were asked about. Um, the Court of Appeals decision, as you know, came down April 8th. This case was set for trial on April 15th, but did not go that day. And actually, the plea and sentencing was April 24th. And the, the mince, that's what the register of actions reveals. So based on that timeline, and I think based on my experience with what happens with defense counsel discussing with a defendant a plea option, it's, it's pretty clear from that that it happened after the Court of Appeals decision came down. But if that is, again, what the court is concerned about, then there is another case that can be accelerated and the issue addressed. Um, I also just want to point out um, that when, with the Attorney General's position that the entire statewide uh, public defense budget has to be depleted or otherwise encumbered before a defendant can go to the 611-21 funds for interpreter services, it is unreasonable, impractical, and extremely cumbersome. And you've got to remember, too, that this is a criminal defendant, many of which are sitting in custody while all of this budgeting and accounting and spreadsheets are going to have to be presented to a district court judge. And if the court's going to go to that direction, then we would ask that it be perspective only because the existing law has been that only the district public defender's budget is looked at for whether there's funds for expert services. And that's following the Wilson, in Ray Wilson decision of the Court of Appeals that was uh, 20 years ago. And at that point, 
Because of that decision, the affidavits from the chief public defender were then submitted as part of these 611-21 requests that the public defender funds had been depleted or otherwise encumbered for that district. And that's the, the if you look at the actual language of 611-21A, it doesn't require that, but the Wilson decision held that. So that's been the practice since that point, and it has never gone to and looking at the entire statewide budget for the public defense. Um, so that would be, if the court goes that direction, we would certainly ask that it be perspective only, um, given that in this case the law was followed, the practice was followed. And um, the, other, the other point I'd really like to focus on is that under 611.33 subdivision 3, the, the language does say it's the board's responsibility to pay for these out-of-court services in this case for the interpreter to be able to um, work with the defense attorney and communicate with appellant. The board's fulfilled its responsibility by getting money from the legislature and allocating that money to each judicial district, the appellate office and the public defense corporations for these funds. They fulfilled their responsibility in that way. Each of these districts run their own office, run their own budget, and they have that fund, those funds available. Um, and if you make, you know, go to a statewide search, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road because if the if they can take money from another district's expert funds at some point during that year, and then they run out, they have to go to the judge in that county in that district to get money for the expert or interpreter funds, and that isn't even the original prosecuting county. So it's just, it, it's just a problem that... Is there anything that would keep a district from allocating zero funds for experts? There, well, they don't. I mean, they, they all have those funds because they do request those from the, you know, as part of their budget, um, so they... So when it flows from the state to the districts, is it just a lump sum that comes from the state to the districts for hiring lawyers and rent and that? Or is it they get money for lawyers and rent, and then if there's money left over, that's distributed separately for these expert fees? So how, so how, it, how it operates is, it, for instance, the district office or my office, we, we submit a budget to the administrator um, and has very, you know, broken down as far as what we need from last year's budget and what, you know, expectations are for the next year's budget. And then when we get our budget back, those are lines are filled to the extent that they're able to do that um, with the money that's come in from the legislature. So I see my time is up. Again, we'd ask well, this can court. Can I just follow up one yeah. more thing? So, are, so when the money comes to your office, I don't know if you use, you might probably use interpreters too. Um, it's a specific line item in your coming from the state to you saying you have to use this money for interpreters? So, yeah, so so the budget's broken down by our different operating costs and what we need, and there are the line items, um, obviously within, um, you know, that those are the ones that we have put in, like I've sent that as my budget. Um, same thing with the district offices, they send in what is their budget, and when it comes back, you know, the fixed costs, you know, they're, they're the fixed costs. And the line item for expert services or professional services is there for hiring, well, for 
for the district offices, it's for hiring experts, investigators, um, con you know, conflict attorney uh, contracts, and interpreter services, and any other services that fall in that line. Okay. And again, we would just ask this court to reverse the district court's order and the court of appeals decision. Thank you. Uh, thank you, counsel. The matter is submitted. We will be we'll decide it in the ordinary course. Uh, our thanks to both counsel for your help this morning. We are in recess.